I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net, episode 95, the third century and late antiquity. In this episode, we're going to discuss the widespread term of periodization, late antiquity. This will be useful on a few levels. For non-historians, there's a very real possibility that when historians say late antiquity or late antique, and nod knowingly to each other, the lay observer just doesn't really get what they're talking about at all. Everyone has heard of, say, the Middle Ages or modernity, but late antiquity hasn't sort of gone feral outside of the academy in the way that these terms have. But then many of our listeners are historians in one field or another, and this discussion may well have value for these folks as well, because the term late antiquity is new, it's contested, and can actually do with some more public thrashing out. For these folks, we'll be setting our methodology on the table so that at least it will be clear what we mean by late antique and late antiquity on the Schwepp. From the perspective of historians or lovers of Western esotericism, we need to do this work of exploring what we mean because despite what you might think from listening to the Schwepp so far, which has mostly had to do with the antique period, the really crucial ancient developments of Western esotericism occur predominantly in late antiquity and are indeed arguably, specifically, and characteristically late antique developments. So let's get the simple story covered, and then we can come back in and ask questions of the simple story. The term late antiquity is used to refer to a period of time in the Greco-Roman world, or sometimes the Greco-Roman world plus the Central Asian sphere, controlled by the Sasanian Empire, and this period is, in meaningful ways, no longer the same thing as antiquity, but it's not yet medieval. It has its own thang going on, in other words, a late antique thang. This term seems to have arisen first in German scholarship, but really came into the scholarly world map with the work of Peter Brown, the decorated Princeton historian of the late Roman world. Two publications in particular, 1971's The World of Late Antiquity and 1978's The Making of Late Antiquity, had a major effect on how historians related to, well, what is now called Late Antiquity. It's the transition period between the ancient world and the medieval world. Brown's dating is roughly from the end of the crisis of the third century, more on this anon, until roughly the end of the eighth century with many local variations. For example, in Britain, late antiquity ends earlier than elsewhere, and the medieval period begins because the Romans cut and run in the 5th century and things get pretty medieval pretty quickly. Scholars are always arguing out the specifics and the details and the exact parameters, but we can say that Brown's basic model of late antiquity has proven its worth for a number of decades now. And if you think roughly the year 250 CE until roughly the 8th century or the 9th century, you'll be doing pretty well. Unless, that is, you have the misfortune to run into a specialist in late antique studies, in which case they'll talk your ear off about, well, you'll see as this episode progresses. Full disclosure, your host is a specialist in late antiquity, in case you haven't noticed, so let's get on with it. Now hang on a minute, I hear some acute listener say, antiquity and the Middle Ages are both just man-made boxes into which we like to stuff the continuum that is history. They only have relevance or usefulness, they can only act as accurate maps of the historical territory if they tell us something useful about the history we're studying. I hear you, gentle listener, 
So here's my pitch for the usefulness of late antiquity as a concept. But first, let's look at antiquity and the Middle Ages. The term Middle Ages, like Middle Platonism in fact, is fundamentally flawed in that it smuggles in preoccupations and values of modern observers. In the case of the Middle Ages, we're thinking of two periods of history that matter, antiquity and modernity. And describing the term middle to mark the intervening period, which doesn't matter. The Middle Ages, at the worst end of historical scholarship, are a kind of placeholder marking a lull in the nevertheless inexorable march of progress from, to take one popular narrative, Greek rationalism and science, followed by the Roman political project, which kind of served to disseminate this rational scientific work across Europe, followed by a collapse of the Roman Empire into barbarism, anti-scientific superstition, blah blah blah, but then the flame of rational inquiry was reignited by some chosen group of early modern stroke Renaissance intellectuals. Renaissance means rebirth, remember, so what is being reborn? The good stuff, Western man's true heritage, destiny, whatever. A chosen group of these intellectuals rebirthed the rational scientific legacy of ancient Greek stuff, and modernity was born. Cue Isaac Newton but not Isaac Newton the alchemist. The Industrial Revolution, which really was a revolution, trust us, and the rebirth of things like freedom and democracy, all of which can of course be traced back to 5th century Athens. So, this little rant is just to point out the fact that when discussing history, we have a very shopworn set of tools. To talk about the Middle Ages is automatically to take on board some bullshit ideas, even if you don't, as a historian, subscribe to these ideas, and you have to continue promulgating them in some way just because you're using this term Middle Ages. However, getting back to our main argument, although we need a better term than medieval, we can nevertheless point quite systematically to real differences between what we reluctantly call the medieval world and the antique world. The antique world had a totally different social organization. The Middle Ages in Western Europe are marked by the specific social-political system known as feudalism, to take one example out of many. So, there are differences. We're right to talk about these different periods as different, but the names sometimes let us down. Now, what about late antiquity? Why should we need this term? Well, scholars of religion and historians of ideas have pointed out a number of really fascinating and significant changes which start to occur gradually and without liars, from about the end of the second century, beginning of the third, onward. Let me just say here that you have to take this thing about outliers and gradualism very seriously, please, because we need to discuss what is significantly late antique, what's distinctive about late antiquity in this episode of roughly half an hour, and so we need to leave out a lot of qualifications and micro-dating issues and so on. Right, disclaimer, done. What are these significant late antique characteristics of thought? Well, first of all, before we get to that, we have a lot of significant characteristic late antique changes in political and social organization, and these are surely significant forces shaping the transition of human thinking from antique modes to something new, something late antique. So we want to talk about the social and the political changes going on in late antiquity as well. Yes, gentle listener, these things are significant, and it is surely for a reason that people like Peter Brown look to the historical events 
of the third century crisis as a convenient and meaningful beginning of something new. It is thus absolutely essential that we discuss two scholarly formulations, the crisis of the third century and the fall of Rome, before we move on to what is so late antique about late antique thought. So, the crisis of the third century. Now, this crisis is one of those things that provide a lot of employment for classicists and other historians, and the idea of the crisis sort of goes through trends, a bit like the idea of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, which we'll get to next. In the third century, the Roman state ran into a succession of very serious setbacks and just plain disasters, and no responsible historian will argue against this assessment. The argument is over things like specifics, and things like whether it makes sense to call this rather long period a crisis or a series of crises, for example, and whether, and here's the big one, these crises or big old crisis should be considered as part of a larger narrative of decline and fall, or rather one of transformation of some sort, in which decline is an inappropriate term to use. For a long time, obviously, in the 20th century, it was very common to talk about uh, late antique decadence and stuff like this, but with the work of Peter Brown and others reassessing late antiquity, people have started to talk more about transformation. After all, how do you measure decline? But anyway, let's discuss some undeniably significant events of our period, whether it's a decline or a crisis or an evolution or a bunch of crises or whatever. Briefly, very briefly, the Emperor Severus Alexander was murdered by his own troops in the year 235 CE. An event which set off a really turbulent 50 or so years where rival claimants to the imperial power and remember the Roman state had never worked out an official mechanism for determining succession who's going to be the next emperor. So it was increasingly about mustering the biggest army and mustering political influence in the Senate and elites at Rome and trying to make a bid for power. At the end of this succession crisis, or long civil war, or series of civil wars, depending on how you want to define it, during which major portions of territory temporarily split off into independent kingdoms, both in Western Europe and in the Levant, so that Rome temporarily actually fragmented and wasn't even the Roman Empire that we know, which would eventually happen permanently, but not for a few hundred years yet, the emperor was once again unified under the Emperor Aurelian, who reigned from 270 to 275. And in 284, the Emperor Domitian put through a sweeping raft of pragmatic reforms which you could also argue was a kind of internal revolution or coup d'etat, which officially transformed the empire into something more resembling an all-out military dictatorship organized for survival by military means at all costs, ruled by a professional military class. The old Roman senatorial aristocracy were in some cases ruthlessly driven out of the seats of power, and a new ruling elite of military professionals was installed. The army was reorganized and peaking at something like 600,000 men, became probably the largest military force the ancient world had ever seen. The empire was now what historians call the dominate. Remember the Roman Republic? So after the Republic, we have, with the accession of Augustus, the beginning of the empire, we get what's called the Roman Principate, the first tranche of Roman emperors. Now, with Domitian's reforms, we are in the dominate, a period of proper 
absolute rule by a centralized imperial stroke military complex. Now, this period, the crisis of the third century, was a period of constant warfare. Warfare between Romans and Romans, warfare between Romans and a whole caste of so-called barbarian groups who kept descending on the frontiers in raiding parties and sometimes in proper state-of-the-art armies, for that matter, and warfare between Romans and people who were trying to opt out of being Romans, like, for example, the Palmyrene state, which set itself up as a proper kingdom, except it was a queendom, in what were formerly the lands of Eastern Rome, the Levant, Egypt, and so on. They were reconquered by Rome, and Zenobia of Palmyra famously was led in fetters to the capital. There was also a serious long-term pandemic in our period. The Antonine Plague, which we mentioned in episode 72, had softened the Romans up, weakening both the military and the economy of the empire. That was in the 2nd century. The so-called Plague of Cyprian, which was on a pervasive slow burn throughout the empire from 249 to 262, was not a knockout blow to Rome, but it definitely made her legs wobble. Something like 65% of the population of Alexandria died, for example. This is a learned estimate based on what data we have. 5,000 people a day were dying at Rome. This is the sort of thing we're talking about. And it went on in waves for more than a decade. So very, very weakening to the fabric of the empire on many levels. There was also a serious and ongoing crisis with the currency, something which Domitian's reforms and later Constantine's and others reforms of the currency would sort of staunch, but not really find any long-term solutions for, resulting in economic stagnation, inflation, and lots of other bad stuff. The collapse of the late Roman economy is very, very fascinating, and um, unfortunately not something we really have time to talk about in this podcast, but do check it out, because it's interesting, and it's amazing the degree to which the patterns of human thought can sometimes follow the patterns of money. Anyway, Meanwhile, taxes went through the roof, and they would stay there in an effort to keep feeding the enormous military machine, which was from the perspective of Rome's ruling elite. Remember, these are all military generals aiming at what we would nowadays call a military junta to be Rome's only hope for survival. So they basically had bet the farm on the army, and there was no turning back. Sometimes the tax burden was so high that as things began to unravel in later centuries, Various populations under Roman rule would look at the threat of the Roman military infrastructure breaking down, knowing all the chaos and incursions and what else that that would bring, versus paying their taxes, and they would opt with open eyes for the chaos and the incursions and the anarchy. For many ordinary folks, anything was better than life in the later dominate. So, the center of the third century, and some of the instabilities which were rampant at the time. It's very relevant to the story of Western esotericism on a number of levels. We shall be referring to this as the crisis of the third century for convenience, but do keep in mind that this may be a misleading construction. Lots of scholars don't want to call it a crisis. They want to call it lots of different crises and all sorts of things. But it's a convenient way of referring to it. It was a very, very turbulent time. Some scholars think in hindsight that the Roman Empire almost collapsed but was only saved by some decisive action from the top. Others say that, no, no, it wasn't going to collapse. It still had a lot of oomph left in it. I'm not addressing any of those issues. I'm just saying it was a heck of a time in the middle of the third century. Now, what about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire? This is, of course, 
the title of the massive historical study by Edward Gibbon, written and published over a 20-year period in the 18th century. Gibbon's work is perhaps one of the most significant works of history or historiography ever written. It's up there with the greats for sure. And he set the debate for centuries. And actually, historiography is still arguing with Gibbon in many ways, or responding to Gibbon, or returning to Gibbon for insights and going, oh, well, actually, this makes sense. Oh, no, this doesn't make sense, so on and so forth. Now, here's something that people who haven't read Gibbon might not know. The city of Rome was sacked in the year 410 by a Gothic army led by Alaric the Goth, and again in 455 by another Germanic group, the Vandals, who were thus immortalized as wreckers of urban spaces, i.e. Vandals. However, this stuff that I've just referred to in the early 5th century is not the fall of the Roman Empire for Gibbon, and it is covered very early in his massive work. The fall of the Roman Empire, of course, occurs in the year 1453, when Constantinople, the second Rome, falls to the Ottoman Turks. Here's the key point I want to make. The fall of Rome, the city, and the collapse of the Western Empire, and let me just say here, whatever we want to think about decline and fall, and do societies decline or do they just transform, there is no doubt that the Western Empire collapsed by any of the empirical measures by which we measure societal collapses. Radical economic shrinkage, widespread and precipitous loss of technological savvy, collapse of urban populations as people fled the violent and starving cities to take up subsistence farming, uh, political breakup into smaller and less stable successor kingdoms, catastrophic loss of literacy, all that stuff. All that stuff happens in the Western Roman Empire for sure, from the 5th century onwards. However, this collapse never occurred in the Eastern Mediterranean. That would seem to mean that the feudalism thing I alluded to earlier, where we define the Middle Ages in part by the institution of feudalism, this distinctively medieval way of organizing a society, this does not apply to the Eastern Roman world. And that would seem to imply either that the East Roman world had a much longer late antiquity than the West, or that it doesn't maybe make sense to refer to a medieval period in the Eastern Mediterranean at all. Interesting. So why is there a widespread belief that the end of Rome, the city, and the accompanying collapse of Western European societies is a kind of cosmic fact such that we can apply the term medieval to the whole world when medieval is maybe only relevant to a small region in the far west of Europe? This is because, probably, the far west of Europe developed and crafted the historical narratives we are reading. These narratives are deeply Eurocentric, to use the trendy term. Now, it's fine to be Eurocentric if you're writing about Europe or Western Europe, but please don't mistake the history of Europe for the history of everything. Let's take another instructive example from historiography. The later Roman Empire is referred to as Byzantium. Now think about that for a second. There's a whole major field of historical studies called Byzantine studies. We prefer to call the East Roman or the Orthodox Roman state, as some scholars like to call it, by the name of Byzantium, the relatively unimportant Greek city-state, which in the classical period had occupied the site of what would later become Constantinople. It's certainly not Rome, despite the fact that these people called themselves Romans. 
it's not even Constantinopolitia or something like that. It's Byzantium. Why on earth would we call the continuation of the Roman Empire in the Eastern Mediterranean Byzantium? But we do. Now, to quote Glenn Bowersock, a prominent voice in the study of late antiquity, quote, Now, in 1995, which is when he's delivering this paper, it is probably fair to say that no responsible historian of the ancient or medieval world would want to address or acknowledge the fall of Rome as either fact or paradigm. It has ended up as a construction that has its own place in modern history across the 200 years that followed the first volume of Gibbon's work in 1776. It represented the fears of European and American thinkers as they confronted the instability of the civilization to which they belonged. The fall of Rome, symbolized by the imposing ruin travelers and archaeologists could readily see, counseled caution and, to the extent that its apparent lessons were heeded, or thought to be heeded, often encouraged an unseemly arrogance and self-satisfaction. End of quote. In other words, the fall of Rome in the way we've just defined it, as centered on the city of Rome and the fate of the Western Empire, tells a story not of late antique history, but of modern European and American self-reflection and fears about their own possible decline and fall, or self-satisfaction that they weren't declining and falling in the way that the Romans obviously had done. We mention this primarily as an important historical fact, because we shall be talking a lot in this podcast about Romans. In historical contexts, such as the rise of Islam in the 8th century, which many people might think don't make any sense. Like, there were no Romans in the 8th century. There were. They were important historically, and we shall be writing them back into history in this podcast. So do not expect Rome to fall anytime soon. However, all that being said, the Dominate was different from the Principate. The crisis of the 3rd century did leave indelible marks on the consciousness of the West, as did the repeated sackings of Rome for that matter. How could they not? And religious and philosophical thought was transformed in the period we call late antiquity. So let's get finally to these changes of thinking. There are several that I want to emphasize here, and this is a list of three major themes which is completely subjective, but I think they're very interesting to scholars of Western esotericism and even crucial to understand. Other scholars would certainly emphasize other things. My list consists of the rise of totalitarianism, the interiorization of religion, and the rise of the individual. All of these are complex phenomena which require unpacking, but all of them represent, I think, key developments occurring in late antiquity. And interestingly, they also mark late antiquity as a period of transformation into something which we as moderns can actually understand more easily than the archaic or classical periods, when people really did think in ways that were highly alien to modern ways of thinking. I feel like in a certain sense, the modern Western consciousness really begins to be born in late antiquity. And in fact, it's perfectly fitting that my list of themes concentrates on such a subjective group of themes, because it is in late antiquity that some have argued a true subjectivity begins to develop. But anyway, let's discuss totalitarianism, or the thinking and enactment of total control. One ring to rule them all. The term totalitarianism 
tends to be used in a political context. Stalin was a totalitarian leader, and his regime promoted a totalizing ideology. Okay, I think Ketris Paribus, that this term maps very well onto late antique thinking. Totalitarianism was invented in this period. We've seen in our coverage of the second century the beginnings of what we've been calling orthodox thinking. This is the idea that not only can there only be one truth, there can only be one valid way of expressing this truth, socially, religiously, politically. It's a notorious and well-studied fact that this really is a new thing moving into late antiquity. Going back to the classical period, we have in Plato numerous statements to the effect that there can only be one truth, and even that we could try to reach for the single social order which embodies it most perfectly. See Plato's Republic and Laws, among other dialogues. However, it is only in late antiquity that we get statements like this and people trying to make it happen, to put them into practice in real life. Tatian, the second century Christian thinker, probably a student of Justin Martyr and perhaps one of Clement of Alexandria's teachers, is on record as saying, quote, there should be one code of law for all mankind and one political organization, end of quote. All right, Tatian. So far, we're perhaps just dealing with a kind of ideological commitment to the idea that there ought in theory to be a best possible society, right? And that this would be the one we should pursue. It would be Christian, a Christian society. This would be the best thing in theory. However, from the fourth century onward, so a long time after Tatian, Roman politics and institutional Orthodox Catholic Christianity would attempt to pursue this ideal as a reality, resulting in perhaps the first ever attempt to achieve something like the Soviets or Mao later aimed for with much better technical means, a complete societal, religious, economic, and political transformation of humanity into something new and something that is just one thing. There's only one religion permitted, Christianity, and Christianity, of course, of a particular type. God knows this, and he condemns everyone else in the afterlife who isn't of that type of Christianity. And so we here on earth should do the same thing in regular life. There's only one ruler, the emperor, whose office became increasingly seen in the Christian centuries of late antiquity as an earthly image of God's heavenly court, and thus, in a sense, divine. There is only one truth, increasingly defined in terms of credos established by church councils, which attempted something no one had ever done before, to formulate truth in an absolute sense, condensed down to a handy series of sound bites, often ones that no one could understand, and then rolled out as an ancient form of political correctness to contradict which could mean death. However, it wasn't only Christianity which thought and acted this way in late antiquity. This is the thing. Religious persecution in general was born in late antiquity. And the Christians were, in the first centuries, more often than not on the receiving end of it, rather than dishing it out. In a fascinating irony of history, it was more often than not the Christians' rejection of the pluralistic, easygoing acceptance of all religious movements as permissible and even interchangeable, which was the normal approach throughout the classical period all over the Mediterranean world. Students of classical mythology, Roman society, this is, this is well known. This is the pre monotheist way in which, oh, you worship Isis? Oh, you mean Demeter? Yeah, you, I, Demeter? So, someone told me it was actually uh, Hera. Okay, yeah, Hera, that, that works too. You know, this sort of approach to religion. 
persecution. This marked the Christians out for persecution because they were saying, no, Demeter and Hera and Isis, they're all the devil. Only the Christians and the Jews, but the Christians were the only ones who were really out there converting um, normal Hellenic people to being Christians, while the Jews were pretty much not trying to convert anyone. Only the Christians went around shouting that the only religion that was true was theirs, and all the traditional religious institutions were works of evil, and this got them into hot water. They were, in many cases, persecuted for being enemies of the normal pluralistic worldview and refusing to shut up about it. This sometimes took the form of trashing temples, this sometimes took the form of rioting, and so on. Lots of stuff that the authorities took a very dim view of, but it was also just bloody annoying to people. But as we shall see in a few episodes' time, this kind of orthodox or totalizing vision of human life came to be a norm, at least among the intellectuals whose writings survive from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. And later on, it became an institutionalized societal fact. The Christians didn't have a monopoly on this type of orthodox or totalizing vision, but they were the ones who came out on top and were able to impose their will. Not that persecution of religious groups hadn't existed in the classical period. I'm not going to come out and say that. The Romans killed a lot of Jews in the first and second centuries. We know this. And they did it in a very programmatic way. Kill all the Jews. But these were always Jews who had either taken up arms against the Romans. In other words, kill all the rebels who happened to be Jews. Or Jews who spit in the face of the emperor in some symbolic way. So kill all these bastards who are insulting publicly the majesty of Rome. Now, the imperial cult was, of course, a religious arm of the Roman state, and it certainly helped plant the seeds of later emperor-as-gods vice-regent models of divine government, which we'll be talking about as we get into late antiquity. And it probably helped plant the seeds of the divine right of kings that we find in medieval Western Europe. But the imperial cult in the classical period was not really a religion <laughs> in the sense that Christianity is is a religion. It was a kind of minimal requirement of pledging allegiance to the state in the person of the emperor through public cult, alongside whatever your other religious activities might be. It was a purely public cult, a ritualized performance of loyalty to Rome. It was a bit maybe like in America where kids stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance. What mattered was doing the sacrifice in front of the statue of the emperor. No one cared about, for example, your beliefs. Like, really, the Romans did not care about your beliefs in the classical period. In late antiquity, just believing became important, and even something that could get you killed. So, this rise of thought crime as an actual thing brings us to our next key late antique development, the interiorization and privatization of religion. So, religious life underwent radical transformations in our period, and actually leading up to our period. Christian dominance is an end result of this transformation, but not really a cause, or not the only cause. We've spoken about the locative versus utopian distinction before in the podcast. This is a theory developed by the scholar of religions, Jonathan Smith, from Chicago, in a number of writings from the 70s onwards. His book, Map is Not Territory, contains a collection of some of his most important essays looking at locative religions and utopian religions. Now, what we see in late antiquity is a major landslide toward the utopian type of religion over the locative. 
although this trend actually began already in the Hellenistic period in a small way, but it gathers pace and it becomes the norm in the late antique. So what do locative and utopian mean? A locative religion, in Smith's terms, is based primarily in a place. Most fundamentally, it's based in a temple site or other holy site. Remember, the vast majority of traditional cult from the Archaic period through the Classical period, and not just among Greeks, but among Romans, among Mediterranean peoples in general, is based in temples, shrines, or sometimes in mobile kind of shrines, like, for example, the Bark of Isis we talked about in our episode on Apuleius's Golden Ass, or earlier, the Hebrew Ark of the Covenant, which was a kind of sacred temple that you could pack up and carry around with you. The Jewish temple, later on, is a perfect example of this. Even for Philo of Alexandria, who in many ways reminds us of a late antique thinker in his insistence on an individualized, noetic form of religion acted out by the philosophic Jewish elite, even Philo still assumes that the temple in Jerusalem is the crucial an irreplaceable site where Jewish religion is enacted. Now, what did you do in the temple? What did you do in these locuses of religion? Well, first of all, what you did was overwhelmingly public. Religious cult, at least in the Greco-Roman world, was a social affair. The Romans had their household gods, okay, but even the rites due to the household gods had a kind of public performative aspect with the paterfamilias doing stuff in the family, looking on and so on. In terms of Greco-Roman cult generally, it was public, it was civic, it was social. In our episode on incubation, we saw how even ritualized dreaming, and how much more personal and private can you get than dreaming, even ritualized dreaming was carried out in public, temple contexts, and the results of the dreams were often socialized, such that the recipients of healing dreams from Asclepius, for example, would pay money to put up an inscription telling other visitors to the temple about what the god did for them. And this was a form of sacrifice to Asclepius. It was a thanks offering. And this brings us to sacrifice, which is the primary thing you did to engage with the gods in classical religion. Sometimes this sacrifice would take the form of, for example, an inscription of the sort we've just mentioned or other votive offering, but sometimes it really was just good old-fashioned bloodletting such as had been going on in the Jewish temple since really a long time ago. This was the basic form of classical religion, a quid pro quo relationship with gods carried out in special places. Now, turning to what Smith calls a utopian religion, this is not utopian in the sense of like utopian literature, which imagines alternative societies. See episode 29 of the podcast. This is just taking the etymology of utopia, a term coined by Thomas More from Greek terms meaning no place, riffing on that to indicate that these were non-locative religious movements. They weren't based in a place. I'm not sure why Smith didn't just call them non-locative and fastened on utopian, but anyway, never mind. Utopian religion might be based in no place in particular. So already in Hellenistic cults, we start to find the idea that God is everywhere and nowhere, and so are his temples. So anywhere on earth is, is suitable for worship. And this is an idea which we begin to find more and more widely in late antique religions in various forms. Or increasingly, religion might be seen as taking place not in a temple, but actually in the body of a holy man. We see this in the rapidly developing cult of saints. 
and relics in Christianity in late antiquity, right? But we see it earlier as well in the figure, for example, of the wonder-working sage Apollonius of Tiana, whose specialism as a philosopher allowed him to cruise around the Roman world enacting all kinds of miraculous things by virtue of his religious power, his spiritual power. Apollonius lived quite early in the first century, before the late antique period, but we must remember that our biography of him, which tells of all his wonder workings, comes from Philostratos, a second and third century writer, whose portrayal of the sage of Tiana makes him recognizably into what Peter Brown influentially called the late pagan holy man. He is, if you like, a wandering temple. And note that Apollonius is also a vegetarian who rejects traditional sacrifice, as did an increasing number of people as late antiquity went on. Again, the rejection of sacrifice goes all the way back to very small number of people like Empedocles and perhaps early Pythagoreans who thought that slaughtering animals was wrong for metaphysical reasons. But it seems to gain widespread traction in late antiquity, such that people just stop sacrificing. We could also cite St. Simeon the Stylite and many other Christian saints. St. Simeon, who hung out on top of a column of a ruined building and sort of became a one-man pilgrimage destination, just sitting on his column and people would come and climb up a ladder and ask him questions. He became, in some ways, the most powerful man in in Rome, but he was just a, a, a dude doing horrible ascetic practices on top of a column. Nothing could be a clearer example, it seems to me, of the temple being replaced by the saint. Utopian religions were also increasingly host to what has been called a privatization of religious life. Public cult was, over a long period, developing in new directions in the Greco-Roman world, including at the extreme end of the spectrum the solitary contemplation that we associate with movements like certain forms of Christianity or late Platonist philosophical religion a la Plotinus. There were also smaller and smaller groupings, such as Christian house churches and the millions of sects and subsects of early Christianity, or the movements behind the Hermetic writings, which feature Egyptian temples as holy sites, but which probably existed more as small teacher-student groupings operating wherever was convenient. We'll be talking about those in just a few episodes' time, and so on and so forth. Smaller and smaller sodalities. Theurgy is another extreme example of this trend, which we shall be discussing in the podcast, of course. The temples and their infrastructure of priests and functionaries, in fact, began to fall into into decay long before the ascendancy of Christianity, already in the second century. Already in the first century, people were complaining about the temples are just not kept up like they used to be. People just weren't coming to the temple like they used to in the old days. Their religious practices were increasingly not civic, or less civic, less public, or enclosed within a smaller group, a theasos, or a collegium, perhaps, or an ecclesia, in the case of the Christians. Now, last but not least, scholars of religion often talk about an interiorization process that goes on in late antiquity. Actions which once were public and enacted through ritual, with no ideological content necessarily implied at all. We sacrifice to the gods here in the temple on such a day every year, and we always have done Yes, but what does it mean? What do you mean, what, what does it mean? We sacrifice to the gods, and we've always done it here. Yes, but why? I just told you why. We sacrifice to the gods, and we always do it here on this day. That's the end of the story. So, 
This began in certain contexts to be replaced by interiorized equivalents of ritual actions, often with strong philosophic or moral messages attached to them. To take just a few examples, late Platonists, aka Neoplatonists, sometimes speak of logike thusia, rational sacrifice, occurring not through killing an animal, but through philosophic contemplation. And the gods are actually much more pleased by this form of sacrifice than by the more old-fashioned way of doing it. Silent prayer, which was seemingly unknown or almost unknown in the classical period, began to be widespread. You could talk to the gods in silence, or for some thinkers, this was even a superior form of communication with the gods, that the gods themselves speak in silence. Of special interest to students of Western esotericism, inner journeys of various kinds began to be valorized as the highest form of religious achievement. The journey of the soul to God, the cosmic ascent, the purification of the soul described in terms of the journey to Eleusis and initiation into the mysteries, etc., etc. Indeed, the mysteries eventually died out or were suppressed as social institutions under Christian hegemony. And though esoteric and in a sense private, the classical mystery cults had been a recognized established form of religion with strong ties to the civic and social aspects of society at large. But the mysteries as a concept lived on in esoteric religions in a major way as something occurring within the individual. Cue initiatory imagery from late antique esotericism right down to last week. The most recent esotericists and occultists talking about initiation into the mysteries and how it happens in the soul and all this kind of thing. This is late antique. The apocalyptic visionary tours of the heavenly palaces, which we associate with Second Temple Judaism, could be and were reread in late antiquity as an inner journey of the individual religious specialist, as visionary experiences. Sacrifices to appease gods were replaced with for example, passwords necessary to pass by angelic guardians, which have to be memorized and kept in the heart or mind of the person undergoing a cosmic ascent. Ritual purification is many times replaced with the idea of moral purification and the cleansing of one's thoughts of impure ideas. So interiorization of ritual, you get the idea. Now, historians of religion sometimes speak of these developments in terms of an inward turn in religious thinking in late antiquity. There is some truth to this, and it brings us nicely to our third topic, the rise of the individual. The ancient Jews thought that God dealt with them collectively. Israel would be rewarded or punished depending on their performance as a nation of the right religious actions and so on. The mysteries had offered a form of salvation to a social grouping which was smaller than the society as a whole, the initiated class, but still a grouping. However, in late antiquity, with the rise of Christianity, we begin to see the idea of salvation or damnation for the entire world, not just for a society, but for everybody, but one individual at a time. This will become the norm. Christians might need to reject all the social ties, even their own father and mother, in the pursuit of salvation. In other words, the social tie has been replaced by the idea of the individual standing before God. We see similar transformations in late antique, traditionally religious people. It's not just Christians. 
or at least in the intellectuals of these movements who've left us writings, people like the late Platonists, the Theurgists, the Hermetics, and others. The late antique Platonist sage, considered as a religious performer, is increasingly a kind of solitary saint figure, pursuing inner achievements and spiritual rank in a manner which, I mean, it might be in the third century, but it's already reminiscent in some ways of medieval Sufism, of Kabbalah, even of modern occultists, whose only community is an online anonymous association, but feel like they're part of a group and are undergoing successive initiations into higher and higher degrees of spiritual power, but it's just them working alone. Late antiquity gives us what many have called the first autobiography. This is the Confessions of St. Augustine, a kind of Bildungsroman focusing on Augustine's inner life, his beliefs, his emotions, his subjective reactions to things, his conversions. Some have said Augustine is the first individual. Now, I think this is maybe overstating the case, and it's also not entirely true, because we can look, for example, to the Hellenistic period, to Stoic spiritual practices of self-reflection and analysis, or Marcus Aurelius's meditations. And this is, a you know, an earlier practice of self-inspection. Um, we can look at Cicero's works, where he talks a lot about his life and his feelings, you know, like his, when his daughter died, how terrible he felt about it and stuff, used in a philosophic context for kind of didactic purposes. So there was introspection, and there was some autobiographical stuff going on earlier. But the fact remains that if we want to talk about a discussion of something like an inward journey or a journey into the self or a, a true self-reflection, we have to wait for Plotinus in the third century before we really get a discussion of that in those terms. This approach to inner life as something we can actually refer to as inner life, individual life, is late antique. Now, I know listeners are thinking here, but for Plotinus, the journey inward is a journey away from subjectivity, toward the universally true and real. And of course, you are right, gentle listener. In fact, of the three developments we've outlined here, the rise of totalitarian thinking, the interiorization and privatization of religion, and the rise of the individual, I'm least happy with the third. I think it's been overblown uh, in scholarship. It lacks nuance. But... I do think it's true that the idea of the self, of what it is to be a human being, was transforming radically in late antiquity, or perhaps I should say ideas of the self were transforming radically in late antiquity, and we need to talk about it. Perhaps rather than the rise of the individual, we should discuss something like the rise of a non-social subjectivity, but that's a mouthful. At any rate, for an excellent discussion of different ways of constructing the self in the classical period by which you can come to maybe understand why people would think that there wasn't such a thing as an individual in the modern sense of the term in the classical period, you can see Christopher Gill's book, which is listed in the notes. And for a good discussion of the self in late antiquity, keep listening to the podcast. Now, that's our introduction to late antiquity as a construct, with some notes of caution and some of the reasons it might be useful. Going forward, this episode will provide a necessary point of reference. So that's basically why we've put it here. You, we're gonna, we might have to say things like, well, that's typically late antique to some scholar who says, yes, quite so, and let's move on. And this episode may give you some idea of what we mean by that. We'll return to the basic historiographical question of periodization. Not only what we mean by late antiquity, but when exactly we mean 
especially when we get to the esoteric movements of Islam and East Rome, because there is a lot of evidence that in these spheres, the term late antiquity, or some other term referring to the same period, the same social situation, needs to be extended long into what we tend to call the medieval period, simply because it really doesn't make sense to speak, for example, of an Islamicate Middle Ages <laughs> if we don't find in the Islamic world any of the characteristics which are supposed to be typically medieval. You know, we don't find feudalism, we don't find mass illiteracy, we don't find medieval stuff. Uh, it may be that it doesn't make sense to talk about a Middle, middle Ages at all. Now, scholarship, I think, is shifting toward the model of a long late antiquity proposed by Peter Brown, which was very revolutionary in its time in the 1970s. But some recent work is talking more about something like first millennium studies and really thinking of the first thousand years of our era, roughly speaking, as being a distinctive period that deserves its own name, its own kind of approaches. But now the podcast will be moving into the discussion of late antique religious movements and esotericism proper. Just as in historical reality, the lines between antiquity and late antiquity are quite blurred in this podcast. Is Clement, for example, an antique or a late antique thinker? He's a bit of both, dear listener. What about Aelius Aristides? As we saw in episode 72, his religious life was both utterly traditional in many ways, and strikingly late antique in certain ways, with his deep personal inner relationship with his gods. All this is true. That's how the history of ideas moves, through shading off from one phase into the next. And we have to be aware that these phases are in the final analysis just sort of arbitrary markers that we put down for our convenience. But moving forward, we shall be discussing a number of thinkers who are truly late antique, as well as truly central to Western esotericism. So that's why we want to get our heads around late antiquity, so we can understand them. And what better way to begin filling out our exploration of late antique thought than by finally presenting our long-promised episode on the rise of unsayability, the rise of the ineffable, the rise of apophatic thinking and writing, something which really takes off in late antiquity. Join us then when we discuss the rise of silence and especially of the paradoxical act of speaking silence in the Greco-Roman world. Failure of nerve and ultimate sign of cultural decadence or first stirrings of modern consciousness, you decide. Stay esoteric.